You can't reach product market fit unless you know whether or not you're getting close to it. This is a kind of a tricky problem. It's really easy to quickly reach for a metric that you've kind of found online. You have one core North Star metric. If you're optimizing for the wrong thing, you can just have like disastrous results. So it's really important to be thoughtful about how you're measuring product market fit. And today we're going to walk through techniques for measuring product market fit from Reforge and from a few other sources like First Round Capital and Rahul Vora from Superhuman. Many companies struggle to find product market fit because they're measuring ineffectively. They're focusing on a single metric when the problem they're trying to address is multivariate. Oftentimes they'll focus on the total number of users, which masks the true health of the business. To successfully measure product market fit, you need to track growth, retention, and engagement. We're going to go into each of these today and talk about how you can measure them. And we're also going to talk about how to course correct if you haven't hit product market fit yet. So this is the third episode in this series on product market fit. If you haven't heard the first two, I would recommend starting there to understand what a quality initial insight is, understand how to put together your product market fit narrative, which helps you to, you know, understand the different aspects of your business and quantify the degree of confidence you have in them. And then also like go and validate these different pillars of your business, be it your growth strategy, your product's desirability, your customers willing to pay, willingness to pay, whether or not you're targeting the right target audience. So check those out. And if you have checked those out today, we're going to get more into once you've architected your strategy, you've performed your validation, you've put a product out there, how do you know whether or not you're getting closer to your goal of product market fit? Now, a couple of things I just want to let you know about today. I am watching my dog right now, and there is a possibility that he starts to complain and disrupts the episode a little bit. So if that happens, I'm sorry about that. My timing was imperfect today. Um, and beyond that, also just want to let you know that the next episode is going to be super, super important. It is about short-term traction channels. Like how do you get your first users? And that topic honestly makes or breaks a lot of business ideas. Like I've had ideas in the past where it's like, okay, we've done some research. We put something out there. Now what? It's just crickets, right? So how do you get from crickets to a sufficient number of users to really test what it is you're trying to do, you know? And that kind of feeds back into this because for some metrics, you need to have a certain amount of users using the product for a certain amount of time for it to be meaningful to look at that metric. For other metrics, it doesn't matter. It's a much shorter time frame and a much smaller number of users that gives you useful feedback. Um, so why does it matter? Like, why, why do we care whether or not we've actually hit product market fit? The biggest reason it matters is because if you think you've hit it and you haven't, you're going to scale prematurely. You're going to spend a bunch on growth, enlarge your team, build more infrastructure, and potentially like, you know, put a noose around your own neck because like, you've just built in this direction that is unsustainable or unappealing. And this happens like frequently. So my last company, I, I was there um, 
when there were six employees and way before we hit product market fit, we hit the gas on hiring. And when I left, there was, you know, over 30 employees. Now that's not hundreds, but the trajectory was really fast and the burn rate that that imposed on the business and the sunk cost of building towards this certain type of product was extremely substantial. Um, whereas at my current business, the hiring rate is much more sustainable. And what we currently have is already appealing to customers more than what we were working on in my previous startup. And yet we're being judicious about it because if you don't have product market fit, you're just going to invest in building something deeply suboptimal. Um, so as Sam Altman puts it from OpenAI, the larger you grow, the harder it becomes to course correct. Once your company is a big moving battleship, it becomes really hard to be nimble and quickly make the aggressive changes you need. So look at Groupon as an example. We were just in Chicago for Thanksgiving, so this is a, an apt example. They track growth as the sole measure of PMF. They scaled aggressively. They built a 1,600-person sales team before long. But it's a two-sided market with merchants and customers. And poor merchant retention was not given due attention. Now, merchants are the hard side of the network. So basically, they ended up with a leaky bucket problem. And at this point, they were a huge company and it became really hard to course correct. Um, so Groupon IPO'd at $13 billion and their current value is about $400 million. So they went from like a decacorn to like an average sized okay bet, which is really like not a great outcome for them and for all their employees and all their investors and founders. And particularly like if you're an employee, a $400 million exit, if the founder has a double digit percentage of the company is still meaningful. But if you have a single digit or less percentage of the company, it's a lot less meaningful for you. So um, it's important to focus on both growth and retention. Here, uh, the dog is whining. I'm going to deal with him and come right back. So Mark Andreessen defines product market fit as being in a good market with a product that can satisfy that market. When you're measuring product market fit effectively, you're measuring growth, which indicates the quality of your market in a certain sense. And you're measuring retention, which, you know, kind of tells you the degree to which you're able to satisfy that market. So it takes a number of periods to accurately gauge retention. It takes about six time periods. So for a daily use product, you're talking about six days. For a weekly use product, you're talking about six weeks. This also speaks to some of the issues you get into dealing with an infrequent use product. So if it's like a monthly or you know annual product, it's, it's very difficult to, to gauge retention easily which is why it's good to find more frequent use cases and layer them in to get a sense for the quality of your product before investing all that time. So the reason why we need to measure engagement as well is it takes six periods and maybe a few hundred users to effectively measure retention. It takes only two periods and any number of users to get an effective read on engagement because in a certain sense, engagement is a within user metric. Um, 
And and what do I mean by that? It's like, let's say we're dealing with this podcast, right? If you follow this podcast and you listen to all the episodes, you're an engaged user. And even if we are just looking at your individual behavior, that still tells us something. Um, but if you're, you know, a, a listener to this podcast, which is a weekly product, and we only have like two weeks worth of data on you, we don't know if you've really meaningfully retained. It's going to take like six weeks to really know if you've stuck around, you know, in a um, significant way. So the first important thing that you need to track is growth. Without growth, everything is is for naught. Uh, which is why next week's episode on getting early users and getting early traction is is going to be so useful. Um, so with growth, we need to watch overall volume, the overall number of users, as well as the profitability of those users. Are we adding new users on a regular basis, and are we adding them in a way that's profitable? With this, like we have to track either new users or unique users if people aren't making accounts to use the product. We don't want cumulative users. So depending on what you're creating, your analytics might be limited, right? Like that's the beauty of a software product is you have the ability to impose detailed analytics. But for example, for this podcast, we are somewhat limited to the analytics that we are given access to by Apple or Spotify or Podbean, which is our hosting provider. So that that's that's a pretty serious drawback in some ways. And another drawback there is like, you know, we don't have your email addresses. Um, so we can't reach out and be like, hey, you know, did you enjoy the episode this week? Like, what did you like? What did you not like? You know, can we give you a Starbucks gift card to like share your thoughts about it? Um, so we rely on you to reach out to us at contact at rdmr.io um, or reach out to me on Twitter at ay0n underscore b to give us your feedback. Um, so we talked about six time periods and a few hundred users, or I would say a hundred plus users. And for marketplaces, as we pointed out with Groupon, it's really important to track both sides of the market. So for Uber, we're talking about um, drivers and riders. And there, for most markets, there's a hard side and an easy side, right? So for Uber, the hard side is drivers. You need to get someone to you know install this thing in their car and like commit to showing up and um, and do a lot more work to provide value, whereas like the riders are consuming value and providing income to the to the drivers. But there are more people willing to be riders than drivers. Um, so it's important to be aware of what is the hard side of your network and pay special attention to that side. So when you're tracking growth, you can have a post-launch decline, which is like you launch it and nobody really cares. Um, so when this happens, you need to go back to the drawing board and brainstorm traction channels and then test those traction channels. And if you've been doing what we recommended in the last episode, which is go out and do 30 to 50 user interviews to get a sense of your customer's needs. Eventually, if you're doing 30 to 50 interviews, you're going to tap out your network and you're not going to have, you know, enough people to like hit that number, depending on your user type, of course. So you're going to have to brainstorm traction channels and try to get user research 
opportunities, get people to talk to you through those traction channels. Those same channels that you use for user research, you can now tap into for growth. And another semi-obvious thing that I just want to share is use your network to get early users. I mean, NoteJoy, which is like this uh, note-taking app uh, created by Sachin Reiki, who is uh, in charge of the Reforge product market fit program, what they did is they, they launched and they had a post-launch decline. They weren't growing. So what did they do? They tapped into their network and they told people they know, hey, like, will you use this app and give us feedback? Maybe some of the same people they didn't use or research with. By doing that, they were able to get the ball rolling on growth. So, um, for example, for us, I was talking to a friend of mine this weekend and he was telling me about some issues he's dealing with on his team that sounded like they could be benefited by one of our episodes. So I was like, hey, you know, um, why don't you give this a listen and tell me what you think? And he's like, yeah, this sounds like it could be a good fit. If it's good, I'll share it with my team. And boom, you have the ball rolling on some early growth. And I'll tell you, like, we've been pretty bad about sharing this podcast with our network because there's kind of an emotional barrier. It's like you're making something, you're putting yourself out there. It feels weird. It feels awkward. It's like, you know, what if it sucks? Honestly, it, 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 it's imperfect at best, right? I mean, it's an early stage for us with what we're doing. And like, the problem is you're always going to feel like that, which is why you have to have this attitude of just shipping it and sharing it with your network. And then as Nojoy did, like brainstorm new early traction channels and also think about your longer term growth loops, you know? So they used content marketing and they also thought about their viral growth loop and how users are going to be incentivized to share Nojoy with others. And for them, it was a, a natural vector of growth because it's like, I wrote a note. Let's say I write a shopping list. Now I'm going to share it with my fiance, um, for example. So you can have post-launch decline. You can have flattened growth. You can have linear growth. And if you're experiencing linear growth, that's great. Um, now your job is to verify if it's sustainable. You know, uh, what is the payback period for your paid channels? And for each paid channel, there's different ways to calculate your payback period. Um, and if you have exponential growth, it's the same thing. So let's talk about payback period a little bit, okay? So payback period is an important financial metric for determining the sustainability of various investments, including marketing investments or growth investments in your traction channel. So payback period is your customer acquisition costs from a certain channel divided by your monthly revenue from that channel multiplied by your margin percentage. So what is this telling you? This is telling you per unit of customer acquisition cost, how much profit are we generating? Um, you know, and, and the way it's doing that is it's indicating to you the number of months it, it, it's going to take to um, pay back that customer acquisition cost. So if you're able to pay back a channel investment in six to 18 months, um, that is a pretty reasonable channel for you. It's a pretty sustainable growth channel. So an example of like, for a company generated content loop, right? Like let's say you're writing articles, you're writing blog posts, 
how much are you paying to produce that content? Divide that by the number of users acquired by that channel. And that gives you your cost per customer or customer acquisition cost. And, and for various different channels, there's different ways to do this for sales, for ads and integration. If you guys want to like learn more about that, reach out to me and I'll tell you more detail on that. Or take uh, Reforge's product market fit uh, program, which is an excellent, albeit somewhat expensive program that will, will pay for itself. Like it's an incredible program. So, and there's a, a ton of detail in there beyond what, what I've talked about here. I mean, their product market fit program is like, you know, uh, multiple months worth of detail on this. And then like, they have deep content on every aspect of growth from activation to retention, to customer acquisition, to growth marketing, to brand marketing. Like it's, and, and much more than that. It's, it's honestly one of the best investments I've ever made. So what about retention? How do you measure and evaluate retention? So a good retention metric combines action frequency with a core action within your product and a segment of users. So this would be, um, let's say for Pinterest, it would be daily active repinners or something along those lines. Or for Uber, it might be weekly active riders or weekly active drivers. For us, for this podcast, it's weekly active listeners. And this core action is like, what is the thing the users are doing within your product that's solving the problem they're trying to solve? So it really depends on your product, but like for, let's say, Ultimate Guitars, like Tabs app, the action is, you know, you click through on a tab and you use it, you, you play through it, you know? And with the Pro Tabs, it's a lot easier to track that. Um, so for them, it might be like daily active players, you know, for that side of the product. Um, so it's important to pay attention to each segment, but that's especially true in multi-sided networks, as we talked about. And once you have your metric, you want to visualize the data using uh, cohort charts and retention curves. And this is obviously a very visual thing. So I, I would Google retention curves. I think Sequoia has a really good article uh, on measuring and interpreting retention through retention curves. So I'm not going to go into extreme detail on this, but what I will say is your retention curve can either be like trending to zero, which means people are joining the app and fading away, at which point you have to do additional validation to figure out, you know, what's not working about your your um, business, you know, what are the riskiest hypotheses and how can you improve upon them? And also do NPS surveys, which we'll talk about later. You can also have a gradual decline, which is better than just trending straight to zero. And there you wanna do NPS surveys featuring both the quantitative and qualitative component. Again, we'll address that. You can have a flat retention curve, which is Pretty good. I mean, that means people are coming to your product and some percentage of them are staying, you know, for six weeks or six time periods. And your ideal thing is if you have a smiling retention curve. And this could be either like the product is increasing in value over time because of network effects such that people who left early on are coming back. So this is like you join Facebook, there's none of your friends on there, you churn your friends start to join and you come back because now the product's more valuable to you. 
Um, or it could even be product improvements. Like you turn from an app that seems promising, but you know, in six weeks you get an email and it's like, Hey, we've, we've created this particular feature. Cause we, we heard, you know, for you guys and we saw that what we're doing is not working, you know, give us another shot maybe if you want to. And the user will maybe check it out and be like, Hey, actually this does address my problem. Now I came to the app for a reason and now it's fulfilling the promise that it made to a greater degree. And now I'm ready to invest in it. So what about engagement? So st start tracking engagement right away because you don't need any particular number of users and it only takes two time periods to start gaining meaningful insights. So for a daily use product, that's two days. For a weekly use product, two weeks. So let's say you take four weeks to uh, validate, do early validation, you're doing your customer interviews, doing competitive research, talking to experts. Then you do like a smoke test, which is where you create a fake landing page, you drive some ad traffic, see if people are clicking through, you, you do a pre-sale to gauge willingness to pay. Um, you know, you build a prototype in, in Figma to get a feel for the interactions with the product. And if users resonate with it when it's more concrete, after all that, now you take four weeks and you build your MVP. Now you're eight weeks in. You put it out there and you start um, hitting up your early traction channels. And within two weeks, you have data to gauge engagement. And now you can either refine your strategy, pivot, or throw it out and start again if you really need to. But if you've done this much validation, it's unlikely you're going to have to toss everything and start completely from scratch. And then <clears throat> two weeks later, I mean, sorry, four weeks later, you're going to have the data to gauge retention as well. So use the same core action as retention uh, when you're measuring engagement. It's a leading indicator of retention. And don't use aggregate line graphs because they tend to hide churn. So what you want to do is you want to use a lifecycle bar chart with segments. Again, this is pretty visual, so I would Google lifecycle bar chart with segments and engagement. Uh, something that's a little less visual and, and easier to grasp here is this metric called the quick ratio from Mamoon Hamid at Kleiner Perkins, which is like, you know, top tier VC firm. His quick ratio is like a really simple and uh, quick way to measure engagement. So basically it's like gains in core actions over a period divided by the losses in core actions in the same period. So a quick ratio of four means for every four actions added, we're losing one. For every four people that take a ride on Uber within a time period, we're losing one rider who's not taking that action anymore. A quick ratio of close to or less than one is unhealthy. You wanna be as high as possible with your quick ratio. <clears throat> okay, so let's say you're in a situation where you've launched your product, your, your usage is trending to zero, you're not retaining customers, what do you do? Like, how do you pivot and improve? One quick, chip, cheap way to do this is to um, use NPS surveys. So NPS is something called the Net Promoter Score. You may have heard of it, but you also may not have because we have various types of folks who listen to this podcast. We have product people who probably are aware of NPS. We have engineers, some of whom may not be aware of NPS. Um, and we also have just people who are interested in tech and entrepreneurship and some of the random stuff we talk about. So NPS is basically like 
the likelihood of the customer to recommend your product to another person. So you ask two questions in Reforge's version of an NPS survey, and that is, how likely are you to recommend our product to another person from zero to 10? And a qualitative question, which is why did you score the product the way you did? So when you first get responses, like you segment based on customer type, engagement level, and NPS score, and a score of less than seven is a detractor. A score of seven or eight marks a passive user, and a score of nine or 10 marks a promoter. And ask yourself, like for the products that you really love, for the products that you've shared with other people, how likely would you be to like recommend them? You know, and for the products you dislike, where are you at? Um, so then you segment this, this qualitative feedback and you interpret it, try to categorize it into themes representing specific user challenges. And for less than 100, you can categorize them manually. But as you get beyond that number, you want to use things like keyword frequency and tag clouds just to make it a little more practical for you. Um, and once you've categorized this data, summarize the frequency of each theme. Like what problems are you hearing most often and least often? And then brainstorm solutions for the top ranked themes and maybe also think about engineering effort for those solutions. Think about the number of users they'd impact and implement your top ones. And start focusing on the segments in your now bucket. So we talked about this in an earlier episode to where when you first come up with your initial insight for your product, you're brainstorming potential customer segments that you're going to target now and later. And you're trying to talk to between five and 10 customers per segment in your user research phase. So focus on the ones you're targeting now. Um, and there's two ways to look at this, right? One way is to focus on the detractors and passives, reduce friction, cater to them and try to get them on board. But there's another way, which is talk to the people who love your product, who can't live without it, and double down on the stuff that they care about. And that's the approach that Rahul Vora from Superhuman uh, used to find product market fit and actually build an engine for finding product market fit at Superhuman. And I really like that, that approach because it's like, there are people who don't really resonate with your core product who you'll never get on board. And there's people who see through the fog and see what this could be and what this will be. And they love the vision of it. You know, so at my current company, we have people like that who are able to see through like some of the friction and the early like messiness of the product and be like, oh, this is going to be revolutionary eventually. Like this is going to help me design circuit boards with like a fraction of the effort, with much more reliability, with much more rigor. Yes, I have to do some weird workarounds, but I'm willing to do that. If you cater to that person, you're catering to someone who is really invested and really cares and gets it. So what Rahul Vora says is, look at the people who can't live without your product and the people just adjacent to that and try to move people who are adjacent to that into the category of promoters, essentially. And interview them on an ongoing basis and pull them in and, and build with them. So if you're interested in this stuff, I would strongly recommend you go and look that up. Be like how we built a product market fit engine at Superhuman, because that's a fantastic approach to reaching product market fit. And it's pretty comprehensive and it's free to look at. So it's a lot more accessible than Reforge. Um, you combine this with the podcast episodes we've been doing. And if you want to take Reforge, I strongly recommend that. 
and you're gonna have a pretty good formula for reaching product market fit. And this, this set of topics is something I'm really passionate about because we all have ideas, you know, for businesses and sometimes we even try to build them, but not understanding this process of assessing the quality of your initial insight, of articulating the different aspects of your business, hypothesizing how they're going to work, trying to understand which are the riskiest, which are the least risky, and then in a lightweight way, validating each aspect of your business, investing over time into heavier weight ways of validating your business, building your initial product, brainstorming the early traction channels, like getting your first like 100 users, then like refining and iterating and like reaching a point where you're sustainable, like it's really overwhelming unless you have a good approach to that. You know, each aspect of it is overwhelming. Like the most common approach to this stuff is you have an initial insight. <clears throat> you look at the market size top down and you build the product and that's how you test it. And that is one of the heaviest weight, most intensive ways to test your product. It's extremely expensive. It's extremely challenging and like a lot of the time if you're a product person you put the product out there and there's crickets and you think it's like a bad product when in reality there's this whole other side to the game of understanding your traction channels your customer acquisition channels understanding what they are early on and what they're going to be longer term um that is just super empowering to learn about so yeah, I hope this has been empowering for you guys. That That's my aim and my hope with this is like you have a business idea, you have a product idea, your existing company, and you're able to listen to these four episodes, three of which are now done, and take that initial insight and build something valuable with it and deliver something that really like helps people and helps you ultimately as well. Um so yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. And we have a bunch of episodes on the horizon here. So high output management, Andy Grove, it's a legendary management methodology in Silicon Valley that we're really excited to dig into. Uh, Arik is doing another episode on radical candor on the practical and tactical side of that um, philosophy. And um, I strongly recommend you check out that episode too, because being you know honest and direct and not either being brutally honest, which is poorly received, um, and not just being silent and pathologically altruistic, basically, is a very hard skill, and it's a very important skill, and that book makes it a lot easier. Um, so um, that those are coming up. I also have my second episode on meta-ethics, for those of you who are interested, so... In that episode, we're going to talk about, um, I believe we're going to talk about ethical naturalism and we're going to talk about moral intuitionism because we talked about ethical anti-realism last time. And yes, this is a very heady, uh, somewhat niche topic, but it's also not a niche topic at all because it asks the fundamental question, is there such a thing as an objective moral truth, a moral truth that is independent of observers? Understanding that will help you to make ethical choices at your company, which is like a huge shield and a moat that protects your business long-term. 
I mean, tons of businesses have been taken down by unethical behavior. The question is, what is unethical behavior? So let me ask you a, a sample question to kind of illustrate the challenges with this, okay? Early on, PayPal, to promote the use of their product, created bots that would buy and sell Beanie Babies on eBay, transacting using PayPal. They did not tell their users that they were using these bots. Is that ethical or is that unethical? Is that the same as what Theranos did by using, uh, poorly using legacy um, blood testing machines in lieu of their promised technology? Or is that different? And why is that different, right? So these questions become very important because, you know, you're going to be indicted in the court of public opinion and maybe an actual court. So having a strong ethical framework is important. Okay, anyway, enough about that. So, uh, and I say that as someone who, not, not as someone who's like, oh, I'm super ethical, but as someone who's like, I, you know, I want a, I want an argument. I want an argument for why this is right or why this is wrong, you know? And I know I, you sometimes won't get it. Sometimes it does come down to moral intuitions. But then when are your moral intuitions valid and when are they invalid? Something else that we'll talk about in, the, in that episode. So another episode that's coming up is the Traction Channel uh, episode, How Do You Get Your First 100 Users? Super, super important episode for us and for you guys too, if you're entrepreneurial, you wanna build things. Uh, I'm considering doing an episode as well on this book called Halsey's Typhoon about an admiral in World War II and how like his greatest virtues kind of led him astray. You know, he's this like bullheaded, like strong admiral who was like a fighting admiral and he led his fleet into a storm that killed, you know, 900 people. And there was like, there's some really important leadership lessons in that book, both for examples of terrible leadership and great leadership. And also just like, I had no idea how bad typhoons can get really. Um, like for example, during a typhoon, the currents under the water are so strong that they can crack a steel airplane clean in half and destroy entire coral coral reefs, just the water currents. Um, during a typhoon, the equivalent of like, you know, I think like tens of thousands of atomic bombs worth of energy are released. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's just, it's just such a crazy thing that we don't think about. So I don't know. Let me know if that episode would appeal to you guys. Um, Ariek's episode that he's about to do on like the practical side of radical candor, that's a direct result of your feedback. So we are very responsive to you guys. And as I said earlier, like we don't have the analytics or the information about you guys to reach out and be like, hey, we want your opinion, your individual opinion. Like we want to hear from you, right? So we have to kind of put it out there kind of broad like this, but like understand that we specifically want like your individual input on the direction of this podcast and whether it's valuable to you or not. And... um yeah, we, we're extremely responsive to it and we want to build this with you guys. So reach out to me at AY0N underscore B on Twitter or contact at rdmr.io. And yeah, I hope you're as excited as we are for the next round of episodes.
Um, and, you know, we're practicing what we preach here. So we're doing a lot of user interviews right now. We're trying to do our own 30 to 50 user interviews with folks to like get a sense of what people care about and what people don't, you know? So um, now is a great time to give us feedback because like we're, we're hunting it down. Um, so yeah, um, we're grateful for you guys. We appreciate you guys. Hope you have a, a great week here and goodbye.